Good morning. Today's scripture is found in Luke, first chapter, verse 38 to 42. Luke 1, 38 to 42. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Greg, thanks for doing our reading. I won't mention that was your son who mentioned pie in the children's sermon. <laughs> yeah, he's a great young man. And uh, Josh, great job discipling Ainsley. Ainsley, I don't know, she probably stepped out, but uh, wherever you are, Ainsley, we're proud of you. Great job. Yeah, so good. And if you have a gift or aspiring gift in worship in some form, I'll let Pastor Josh know he's, he's really good at um, discipling people and, and helping them develop their gifts. So feel free to do that. And Again, if you're interested in one of his CDs, he didn't know I was going to promote it, but it's free. I don't mind promoting free stuff, and uh, they're up here. Let's pray. Lord, we have just heard a song testifying to your amazing grace, a song sung that your grace just changes everything. And Lord, your grace is that undeserved favor that we get from you, and we give you thanks, we give you praise. We will be eternally grateful for what you have given to us, not because we've earned it or deserved it, but because you are a loving, kind, gracious, wonderful, loving God. And we say thank you. We come again to be fed. We come again to learn. We come again to be motivated, to be encouraged, to be challenged, even to be corrected where necessary. (laughs) We ask that you'd use your word and you'd use the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through me to our hearts this morning. Lord, we're mindful of those who are listening to these messages online who are away from us. Some are our missionaries serving overseas. Some are deployed. Some are at school. Some are homesick. We just pray you'd minister to them as they study your word with us and away from us today. Speak to us now, we ask. And we ask these things to the name which is above every name, the name that will cause every living thing to bow, the name Jesus. Amen. We all have questions, and some questions in life can only be answered through divine revelation. Other questions that we have can be answered on the Internet. (laughs) And I think it's kind of important to know which is which. I had some questions about my car, and I couldn't find the answers through divine revelation, so I went to the Internet. I have a Mini Cooper. It needed a new clutch, and I thought, well, I've replaced clutches on cars before. I've replaced them on motorcycles. How hard could it be? So I went to the Internet. Oh, my goodness. Not only can your trusted mechanic not change my clutch, they all refused, you have to go to a Mini Specialist, and Specialist, the S, looks a lot like a dollar sign in Specialist. (laughs) Yeah, I had to send it out, and now it's, I picked it up yesterday, and it's doing just fine. Thank you. We'll be taking a collection up after the service <laughs> to help pay for my clutch. <laughs> 
Some questions can be answered through divine revelation, others through the internet, and it's important not to confuse the two. Because the internet is limited by human reasoning and opinions and understanding, and, I hate to shock you, is not infallible. But the Word of God is 100% infallible. As God inspired it and men wrote it, 100% without error. We can trust the Word of God to guide us. There is an ongoing debate in our society on when life begins. Does a person's life begin at conception? Does a person's life begin at four weeks when the heart starts to beat? Does life begin when the baby takes its first breath? Some people say just like Adam wasn't alive till he got his first breath. And God breathed into him the breath of lives, it says. Or does life begin when society dictates it begins? Sometime after birth, maybe a few days or even a few weeks. The internet offers us a variety of contradictory answers on when life begins. So we have to ask ourselves, what does divine revelation say about when life begins? Divine revelation certainly speaks to the most weighty things of life. Divine revelation tells us how we can be forgiven of sin. Divine revelation tells us how we can be reconciled with God. Divine revelation tells us what happens after we die. And divine revelation tells us how we can have eternal life and live in heaven and live with the Lord forever. And today, as we continue in our series on encountering Jesus, we come to an encounter that Jesus has with his cousin John that causes us to wonder when life begins. Cousins are great things. They're kind of like brothers and sisters with different parents. If you, like me, grew up with cousins, I grew up with cousins, seven cousins, and they were all in just one family like brothers and sisters, and we went on vacations together, and we traveled together, and we spent Christmas holidays together, and we laughed together, and we fought together, and we cried together. They were just like a sibling to me, each one of them. And like me, like you, Jesus had cousins. And Jesus' first encounter with his cousin John was apparently as early as any encounter any cousin could ever have because they were both still in their their mother's wombs. Shortly after Jesus' biological mother, Mary, accepted the divine call to be the mother of the Son of God, she decided to take a road trip to visit her relative, Elizabeth, who also had a miraculous pregnancy and was six months along in that miraculous pregnancy. Let's pick up the story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 35. Luke 1, 35, 
An angel, Gabriel, answered and said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And when we looked at this passage recently, we saw that the angel waited to hear Mary's response. I believe she had a choice. This wasn't forced on her, and she responded with, Yes, I yield my will to the Father's will. And at that point, then, the angel departed from her. Now, at this time, After having the announcement that she was going to be pregnant with the Son of God, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Now, I went to the internet for some answers here because I want to know how far she had to travel. And according to estimates, her relative Elizabeth lived about a hundred miles away. Since she would be traveling by foot, it's estimated this would take her a week to get to her relative's house. And she traveled. Now, we aren't told specifically when Mary actually became pregnant with Jesus. We don't know exactly, but I think it's very safe to assume that she's pregnant by now. There's no indication that God said, well, you're going to have to delay a a while before this pregnancy started. It's been announced. She's accepted. It's been a week now, at least, maybe longer. And she travels, and I think it's a safe assumption that she is now pregnant with Jesus as she arrives at the home of her relative Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant. And so Jesus is about to have his first encounter with his own cousin. They are both in the womb. Look at verse 41. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. In other words, assuming that she is pregnant. Elizabeth is six months pregnant with Jesus' cousin, John. And what science calls a fetus at this level of development, the Bible very clearly calls a baby. And the Greek word for baby is the Greek word brephos. And the Greek word brephos is used eight times in the Scriptures, and every time it's used, it refers to a baby. Look at just a few other passages where this word is used. In chapter 2 of Luke, verse 12, it's used of Jesus after he is born. He's a newborn. He's just been born. And in Luke 2, 12, it says to the shepherds, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby, a brephos, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then in verse 16, and they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby, the brephos, as he lay in the manger. And then in Luke chapter 18, beautiful passage, 
Jesus is gathered with a crowd of people, and the people start bringing their babies to Jesus. Luke 18, verse 15. In verse 15, it says they were bringing even their babies, their brephos, to him in order that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them as if saying, you can't bring babies to Jesus. Keep the children away from the Savior. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But Jesus called for them. He called for the babies, saying, Permit the children to come to me and stop hindering them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Find it interesting, Jesus didn't have much doubt about the babies. He had doubts about the adults. (laughs) And every one of us knows what a baby is. Unless, of course, we've believed a lie of the devil. Well, divine revelation calls John, who is six months along in his development in his mother's womb, a baby. A baby. But more than that, it tells us that John, who is only six months along in gestation, leaps for joy. Now, this may raise some questions about a baby's cognitive abilities in the womb and ability to feel emotions and the ability to know what's going on outside and, and their ability to have spiritual insights. We see another scripture that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Wow. That raises a lot of questions for another sermon and another day from another pastor. <laughs> but what science calls a fetus, divine revelation calls a baby. And from our passage in Luke with John, and especially the passage in Luke 18, where people are bringing their babies to Jesus, we come up with a very important principle for us today. It's the first one on your outline there in your bulletins. Number one, it's this. It's never too early to bring children to Jesus. It's never too early to bring children to Jesus. It doesn't mean they're going to comprehend, but when are you going to start? John was in the womb six months, and Jesus was brought to him, and he leaped for joy. When I pastored in Athens, Greece, and visited an Orthodox Church, I was surprised when they had communion that people would go forward for the bread carrying their children and their babies, and they would take the bread, and they would feed the bread to the babies they were holding. When I asked my Orthodox friend, you know, what are you doing giving bread to babies? And they go, well, we want the babies to come to Jesus too. We want to provide Jesus for the babies And I go, yeah, but they don't understand communion. And then I heard myself speaking. I go, I'm not sure I fully understand communion either. I mean, how much do you have to know other than come to Jesus? It just got me thinking how maybe we wait too long to start introducing children to Jesus. One of the reasons that I spend every Wednesday evening with our three- and four-year-olds in our Cubbies program is because I believe the earlier we introduce children to Jesus the better. 
They're better not only for eternity, but for their life. Why wait? And people say, oh, well, they're just so impressionable. You have to be careful. No, they're not impressionable. They're innocent. Their hearts have not been hardened yet. And then some foolish people say, well, I think children should make their own choice about religion, and I don't want to influence them. Hello? Do you tell them not to play with matches in the living room on the carpet? Don't you make a choice for them? When it comes to potty training, don't you make some choices for them? Of course we make choices for them. And the most important choice is to lead them. Didn't we have a scripture about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life? Let's lead the children appropriately. Every parent, every auntie, every uncle, every grandparent, every brother and sister should who loves Jesus, should intentionally look for ways to introduce Jesus to children. You go, well, I'm not an evangelist. Well, that's why children are so easy. It's never too early to bring children to Jesus. Just recently, I heard the story of a grandmother in our church, and I don't want to mention Brenda's name because I didn't ask permission, but (laughs) I did ask permission. (laughs) She started bringing her unchurched grandchildren to this church. And her little girl, her little granddaughter, five years old, started coming to Sunday school, started hearing about Jesus. And grandmother, after Sunday school, got to pray with her five-year-old granddaughter to receive Jesus. How do you know it's sincere? Well, you saw the change in the five-year-old granddaughter who now wants to pray during Sunday school and lead the other children in prayers. There is nothing better than that. It's never too early to bring children to Jesus. And that's why here at our church we have such a strong emphasis on children. And you heard an announcement about the nursery, and that's a good place to start. If you have a gift of holding screaming babies, you know, (laughs) you can be used. We always have need for volunteers, opportunities for volunteers in Sunday school because we have such rotation. If you're interested, fill out a comment card. Auntie Andrea will call you. We have Vacation Bible School. We have Awana. We have many opportunities. It's never too early to bring children to Jesus. Well, one of the next times that we read of these two cousins, Jesus and John getting together, is in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, John, the cousin, is known by the moniker John the Baptist because he starts baptizing people. And he began his ministry of preparing people for the Messiah. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. And while John is baptizing, his cousin shows up, Jesus. And he tries to keep Jesus from being baptized. He's kind of taken aback that Jesus would come to be baptized by him. But Jesus insists. Let's pick up the story in Matthew 3, verse 13. Matthew 3, verse 13, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him to stop Jesus, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to John, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he, probably John the Baptist, saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon Jesus. 
And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Baptism involves both the repentance from sin, but also a commitment to follow God's will. And John knew that Jesus didn't need to repent from sin. So he goes, why are you being baptized? But Jesus had a commitment to follow the Father's will, so he said, you need to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the right path, to fill the way that I'm going, which is to do the Father's will. And so he was baptized by John. And this marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry as the Messiah. And John sees the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. There's no indication that anyone else saw that. John hears the Father speak from heaven, authenticating that Jesus is the Son of God. And from the second encounter that John had with his cousin Jesus, I see a second principle for you and me this morning. And that second principle, number two on your outline, is this. Partnering with Jesus involves both familiarity and respect. Familiarity and respect. John and Jesus were cousins. There was a family relationship. They felt comfortable with one another. But they were also partners in ministry. In chapter 3 of Matthew, the first three verses, we see this. Matthew 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's getting people to repent of their sins, to admit their sins, because God's kingdom is at hand. And God's kingdom is wherever God is allowed to rule. And Jesus has come as Messiah, and he's ready to rule. The kingdom is at hand. And then describing John, it says, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. John the Baptist is referred to by Isaiah the prophet. prophet. And here's the quote. (coughs) A quote from Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John is the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for his cousin Jesus the Messiah. They are partners in ministry, but they are not equal partners. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, John speaking, As for me, I baptize you in water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not even fit to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And fire is always a signal, or often a symbol of judgment. And Jesus will judge. John had a deep and reverential respect for Jesus as the Messiah. And yet at the same time, when Jesus came to be baptized, John felt familiar enough with Jesus to go, whoa, wait a minute, what are you doing? (laughs) I can't baptize you. Familiarity and respect go hand in hand in our relationship with Jesus. For a short period of time, 
in my naval career, I wore the uniform at the same time as my father. In fact, my father swore me into the Navy out at Barber's Point. He was just a year or two away from retirement after 30-some-odd years in the military, and he swore me in. And when we both were wearing our Navy uniforms, my dad was a full bird, Navy captain, 06, high-ranking. I was a O-nothing. And uh, when I saw him and I was in uniform, I stood at attention and I saluted my dad, and he commanded my full respect. But with or without uniform, he was still my dad. I could still joke with him. I could still hug him when we were both in uniform. That was kind of dangerous because I became so comfortable with people who are 06s that when I was in the military, I'd see an 06 and I'd go, Dad! You know, and, oh, that's not Dad. <laughs> Familiarity and respect. The last time I ever wore my Navy uniform is when I donned the uniform in order to perform my dad's military funeral. I'd like to show you a picture of that. With tears in my eyes, I stood at attention and I saluted my father's flag-draped coffin. Familiarity and respect. They go hand in hand. And John had both in his relationship with Jesus. And you and I should also have both in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We should feel comfortable enough with Him that we can whine, that we can complain, that He can hear our emotions, He can hear our anger, He can hear our frustrations, He can hear our disappointments. But at the same time, He deserves our complete respect. We don't fault Him, we don't blame Him, we don't denigrate Him, we don't blaspheme Him. We can ask questions about circumstances, but I don't think we should ask questions about his character. We respect him. I don't know at what time that John realized that his cousin was God in the flesh. But it would appear from divine revelation that he didn't fully understand it until that moment of the baptism. There's another gospel that records the same event but gives us some more information. It's the gospel of John, chapter 1. The gospel of John is written by a different John. It's not written by John the Baptist, just someone who happens to have the same name. And the gospel writer in chapter 1 of the gospel of John gives us some more information in verse 26 about the baptism. John 1, 26, John, this is John the Baptist speaking now in verse 26, answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And notice verse 31. And I did not recognize him. 
But in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heavens, and he remained upon him. And notice verse 33, and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. What an oddly unique moment for two cousins. One who's grown up with the other suddenly realized his cousin is the Messiah, the Son of God. Partners in ministry, and yet one is to be worshipped as God. So we've now seen two things. It's never too early to bring children to Jesus. Secondly, partnering with Jesus involves both familiarity and respect. John's last encounter with his cousin Jesus is an encounter that happens by long distance through messengers. John is in prison because he chastised King Herod because King Herod had married his own brother's ex-wife. And John Baptist told him that was wrong. So King Herod was afraid of John the Baptist and had him imprisoned. And Herodias, the woman that King Herod married, was not afraid of John the Baptist, and she orchestrated for John to be beheaded. Well, while John is in prison, he appears to have some doubts about Jesus. Matthew chapter 11 records this for us, verses 2 and 3. In Matthew 11, verse 2, now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the coming one or should we look for someone else? Now, that seems like a very peculiar question. Is John doubting now who Jesus is? John had personally witnessed God the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus. He had personally heard God the Father's voice from heaven authenticating Jesus as the Messiah. John himself had proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Had John's imprisonment and Jesus' failure to come rescue him or even visit him caused John to have doubts? I went to the internet for the answers. Our Catholic brothers and sisters would say John had no doubts because he is a saint. And to doubt would be sin. And for you to accuse John of doubting is blasphemy because he's a saint. Our Protestant brothers and sisters say he doubted. He doubted. It's interesting, in his question, when he asks it, John says, are you the coming one or shall we look for, the word someone else is the Greek word for another. The Greeks have two different words for another. One means another of the same kind. 
When Jesus said he would send another helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, he uses another of the same kind. I'm going to send someone like me, only the Holy Spirit. But the Greeks also have another word that means another of a different kind, very different. And John the Baptist uses the Greek word eteron, and eteron here, someone else, means a person or someone of a very different kind, a different kind of Messiah. And what's helpful to know, it, during this period of time, there were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, but there was a third sect that was quite large. They were the Essenes. And the Essenes believed there would be two Messiahs. And the reason they believed that is they read the Old Testament, and the Old Testament talked about a reigning Messiah as king. But you get to Isaiah, and you have a suffering Messiah. And they said, well, how can you have a Messiah that reigns as king, and how can you have a suffering Messiah? So they concluded there were two Messiahs. And could it be that John sees Jesus as the suffering Messiah, and he wants to know, is there another Messiah coming who is the reigning Messiah? I don't know the answer to that question. A simple reading of our text certainly makes it look like John has doubts. And if not doubts, we know for sure he had a question. Which brings us to our last principle, number three, this morning for us. Number three, even the best of us, even the best of us have our questions for Jesus. Even the best of us have questions for Jesus. You might even choose to call them doubts. You can totally love Jesus and still have doubts and still have questions. Christian writer Philip Yancey points out that where there is no room for doubt, there is no room for faith. Jesus, aren't you coming to rescue me in prison? Jesus, aren't you coming to overthrow Herod? Jesus, aren't you even going to visit me, your cousin in prison? Jesus, aren't you? You can fill in the blank. If you're single, aren't you going to give me a spouse? If you're married, aren't you going to help me in my marriage? If you're sick, aren't you going to heal me? If you're having financial disasters and troubles, aren't you going to fix my monetary issue? We have questions for Jesus, and that's okay. But I think they need to be asked respectfully, as John's was. Jesus is okay with questions. He doesn't scold John for asking the question. In fact, he goes on to say, after hearing the question, this about John. He says, among those born of women... There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Even the best of us, like John the Baptist, have questions for Jesus. Familiarity means we can ask Jesus whatever we want. And respect means we do so without accusation, without blasphemy, without accusing Jesus of faulty character. We all have questions. What are yours? Feel free to respectfully ask Jesus your questions. But also, remember, it's a partnership. So he has questions for you as well. 
Let's pray together. I'd like to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes so you can have a private moment as we pray. One of the most important questions that Jesus has for you this morning is, will you accept me as your Savior and yield your will to mine? Every person on the planet has to answer that question. It's, and if you answer that question, yes, He gives you eternal life. If you answer that question, no, you'll experience eternal damnation. And the choice is left up to you. If you're here and you've never received Jesus as your Savior and recognize your need to do that, if you recognize He died for your sins on the cross, that He rose from the grave and He conquered death, if you want Jesus to be your Savior and you're willing to yield your will to His, in this quiet moment, just tell Jesus, Jesus, I believe what you've done for me. I yield my will. I yield my will to your will and ask you to be my Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are the answer to all our questions. Lord, we want to follow you closely. We want to share you with others, whatever age they are. Help us to do that well by the way we live and by the way we speak. And we ask all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Will you stand as we close our service in song? If you're here and you've received Jesus as your Savior today or sometime recently, would you tell someone it's the best decision you could ever make? And we'd love to hear about it. Closing with Numbers today, 624. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Have a great Sunday.